last episode, you heard from Christian Hebert, a farmer in Saskatchewan who leveraged his accounting background and love for business to grow his farm operation substantially. Today, we explore the operating system he uses to run this business and some of the 15 key metrics he keeps on a scorecard to track their progress. I used to study the financial statements pretty intently every month, and now I have a pretty good look at them every quarter, and really, I don't even need to. The scorecard's driving that more than anything. After we go through this entrepreneurial operating system that Christian has implemented, we'll get some of his thoughts on ag tech as a farmer, entrepreneur, and someone who has a lot of firsthand experiences with new ag technologies. Farmers are fiercely independent. It lets us beat mother nature and get through these problems. But at the same time, we don't collaborate very well. And I think the ag tech industry is kind of following that same issue right now. They're, the collaboration's a bit weak. and. And sometimes they need to focus a little more on the check writer, and that's the farmer versus what they're deciding in the boardroom. Part two with Christian Hebert on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. Today's episode is brought to you by Sound Agriculture. Sound Ag's source product is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and more phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil, kind of like caffeine for microbes. You may recall hearing from Sound Ag CEO Adam Lytle on episode 295, and I'm really thankful that they have since decided to advertise on the show. Make sure you take advantage of their performance optimizer to identify which fields get the most out of source corn. Using key data, they can help you place the product more accurately and decide whether focusing on yield lift or nitrogen reduction will give you the best results. The low use rate, flexible application window, and tank mix compatibility make source simple to apply. And source guarantees performance. Activate what's already in your soil and improve your ROI at sound.ag. And thank you very much to SoundAg for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, joining me once again on today's show is Christian Hebert. Christian is the managing partner of Hebert Grain Ventures, a 30,000-acre grain and oilseed operation in southeast Saskatchewan. If you joined us for the last episode, you already know that this is part two of the interview, and I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that part one if you haven't already done so. Christian talked about in that episode his transition from working in accounting to coming back to his family's farm, the business principles and processes that he's put in place to grow his operation, and a lot of just great business advice relevant to farmers for sure, but really anyone who's trying to run their business better. We continue with that theme here today as we dive into the operating system that Christian is using to run his company. And when I say operating system, some of you might immediately think of software. And actually, that's not what I mean at all. This is adapted from a program called the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS. And we talk about the principles involved, which include vision, people, data, issues, process, and traction. Christian's going to describe his scorecard of 15 key metrics that he tracks to make sure his business is performing well and headed in the right direction. In the last episode, he talked about some of the financial metrics that are included on that scorecard, and today he's going to go into some of the other important metrics that he also tracks. First, though, I'm going to drop you back into the conversation where Christian is recalling when he first was introduced to the entrepreneurial operating system and what convinced him this should be used in farming. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I'd been searching for it. I think we implemented it about three or four years ago. I, I'd been searching for some sort of an operating system because I, I didn't really like the ones that I learned in corporate. I just found that you became inundated with meetings and it was more about I felt important because I was at a meeting versus actually solving problems, right? And and I think as entrepreneurs, one of our number one positive traits is that we'll make decisions and move forward. And if, if the decision's wrong and we get new data, you change the decision, but you don't stop moving. And I didn't feel that way out of most corporate operating systems. So I go to a, a business and life coach in Toronto called The Strategic Coach. Dan Sullivan's the guy's name. And that's where I first heard about EOS. Gina Wickman that, that wrote it is actually in, in Strategic Coach. So I got to meet him once. And, and so that's where I heard about it. I read the book Traction and Get a Grip first. And I also read Rocket Fuel before I decided to implement it. And it just kind of hit home, right? It, it just felt like a really fluid operating system that accomplished the two things I wanted. One, let's solve issues every week because nothing pisses yourself or your team off more than an issue that carries on forever and ever. So we need a way to flush out the issues and solve them every week. And that's the part that I'm pretty good at. I, I, if I'm in the room with them once a week, I can solve the issue. But the other thing was, as we grew, you know, certain people in my crew got less and less time with me because I got busier. And so how could we ensure that we push the vision and the values down through our organization? And, and had we really even defined them? I mean, it was interesting once we went through EOS and how they go about defining your vision and values basically I had kind of been following EOS for a decade. I had hired people, you know, that followed my values and I would fire people that didn't because I couldn't get over it. But at the same time, I had a real focus on hiring people that were good at everything I didn't want to do, right? I didn't hire people at something I was good at that made me go to work and not enjoy it. And and I think that was partly, we were working through succession at the same time. And, and it was something that dad and I were able to work through pretty good is that I really love the business and the optimization and and my dad, like I, I would say he's a, an excellent project manager. So whether that's the project if we need to move 3,000 ton of grain next week, or we, we need to go do dirt work on this quarter section before the air seeders get there, and you send them with three or four people, and there's a start and an end, that's what he really shines at. And once we figured out where we kind of fit, you know, it allowed us to expand at a rate that most of our neighboring farms couldn't because the son and dad were always stepping on each other's toes because they wanted the same job. And so that, that probably taught me the most around when we hired people. I needed to hire people around the skill sets that we already had. And for those of you listening that uh, are not familiar with this entrepreneur operating system, and the book Traction is also the one that I read as well. I haven't read Get a Grip or uh, Rocket Fuel yet. But, uh, you know, in, in Traction, he goes through kind of six principles, and that's vision, people, data, issues, process, and then traction. And for you, the vision component, is that mostly based around what the operation looks like as it scales larger, or is there more to the vision than that? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about our vision, right, it's kind of our vision and our purpose. So, I mean, like I said, our, our purpose is respect the past and grow the future. And the reason we kind of came up with that is, I mean, it's a family business and agriculture is an old industry. And and I don't like it when when the newer progressive farms just dirt what we did in the past. We have different data analytics and access to new technologies now that lets us make better decisions than we did in the past because they didn't have the data, right? So let's respect where we've come from. But at the same time, let's not just do it always this way. You know, I think that's one of the most dangerous phrases in life, let alone in agriculture, is if it's not broke, don't fix it. No, if it's not broke, you just haven't looked hard enough because somewhere someone in the world's kicking your ass at it. And so that was kind of our grow the future, you know, part of the vision then we started to go down to say like, what, what do we really do different than other farms? 
And it was actually my management team that came up with that one. And, you know, we started solving problems and, you know, let's just lock Christian in a room full of whiteboards for a day and see what he comes out with. And, you know, all those were on the board. But then that's kind of where my theme of I don't really believe there is new ideas. I think Mike Babcock, you know, the, the old coach of the Red Wings, he said the real definition of R&D is rob and do, not research and development. And that's kind of where the puzzles came in is that, you know, we enjoy solving problems and we and we see challenges as fun. One of our values is can't isn't an option. It shouldn't even be in the dictionary, right? It's just a challenge. And so that's where the puzzle came in is that if, you know, if we build the right network of people to ask for mentorship and ideas and we take our diverse skill set, we're pretty sure that we can pick up puzzle pieces, you know, from different places to to get our puzzle solved. So that's kind of how we came up with that. What do we do different? And then, yeah, we had to have a target. So, I mean, our our 10-year target is 60,000 acres. But do I care if it's 32,000 or 104,000? No, I don't. We kind of have our geographic region we want to stay in. As long as the opportunity makes sense from a financial perspective and it's in that region, we're going to take it. And if that takes us to 36,000 10 years from now, that's okay. If it takes us to 106,000 from now, that's okay too, because we made the decision as a team that it was financially right and, and our team could handle it and it fit the goal. But we needed something, especially for the team members. I, I was less concerned about an acre target because I, I fully believe that better is better before bigger is better. Now, don't get me wrong. If you can scale better, that's really good. But uh, I don't like set targets on acres because I think it sometimes can create this, this mentality of you have to chase acres and run up rents, and that's not our style. But at the same time, my crew, that's the number they understand the best, right? So they wanted an acre target in there to just say, hey, when people ask, I want to have a number. I want to know where we're trying to go. You know, the team had as much influence on that as I did. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I could see where that would prove really, really valuable. I understand you have metrics. I think I maybe read somewhere 15 key metrics that you track on the farm. Could you maybe talk about those and give us some examples of other metrics other than just kind of cash in, cash out? So, I mean, that was that was all part of the U.S. system. They're big on having a weekly scorecard, right? And, and when we first went into it, I have to say that was the part I was most skeptical about. One, because agriculture is so cyclical on a yearly basis. It's not like a manufacturing plant that it's the same every month. And then secondly, you know, I had a pretty good financial background, but I would say now that we pretty much have a scorecard that I, I don't really even care if I look at, I used to study the financial statements pretty intently every month. And now I have a pretty good look at them every quarter. And really, I don't even need to, the scorecards driving that more than anything. So I kind of went through the main financial ones. We got four or five human metrics. So, I mean, we, we track, you know, hours paid per acre. We track days over 16 hours. We track hours per individual compared to the prior year. And we pay overtime, so we track overtime paid. And I mean, we're always trying to trend those down. I think it's one issue in agriculture where we can have, you know, extreme burnout. And especially running 24 hours, I mean, everyone, when we started running 24 hours with the drills, everyone thought we were a little crazy in Canada. I mean, it's a little colder and a little wetter than most parts of the U.S. And But our hours per human went down. People were fresher, right? We were running 12-hour shifts with maybe an hour overlap on either side. And before we were doing that, we were running 16- to 18-hour shifts. And we realized that most of our issues happened when a human worked a back-to-back 16-hour shift. They can handle one if things go sideways, but you get a couple of them, it's tough to do. I don't care who you are. So, you know, we've got those human metrics. And then obviously our cash is heavily driven by grain. So, I mean, we, we have grain metrics. How many bushels do we have left on hand? What percent is sold? And what week is it going to be hauled out in? And did it actually get hauled that week? 
So, we, you know, it's kind of percent left on hand, percent hauled, average price, and then the logistics of the week, you know, that it's going to go out in. So that way, you know, we know every Friday that, hey, we know cash flow is going to be tight in February, but first week of March, we're moving 17 loads of canola. We don't have an issue. How big of a behavior change did it require on the part of you and your people to start tracking all of these metrics? I mean, I don't know if that was why you were skeptical, but certainly a reason why others might not go to this length because it's it's sort of like, you know, diet and exercise, right? You don't see the results until you've been doing it a while. You know, how difficult was that for you to implement? Well, I think a lot of it, we were, in a way, we had the data already. We just hadn't set up the right process to track it easily. You know, whether it was, you know, an app we were using or the financial data. Two, it made us tighten up how we were doing it. So, I mean, we've reduced the lag time on our financial data from probably a week to more like 24 to 36 hours. So, I mean, it, it tightened us up there. And then thirdly, you know, I hired a full-time CFO who runs my consulting company too. And I mean, he, he loves data. He loves it. And so that made it easy is because the person that's in charge of tracking that for us is really good at it and he's really passionate about it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know you were an advisor to the early team at Granular, and I wonder, did you already have these kind of metrics set up at that time? And does a tool like Granular make this metrics part easier? Yeah, so when I started advising down there, no, we hadn't implemented uh, EOS yet. And I would say probably even my experience at Granular made me look for something like EOS more. I mean, I I can remember going down there the first couple of times thinking, what are some kids out of Stanford and MIT going to teach me about farming, right? And uh, got to get a lot of respect for Sid Gorham, who was running it at the time. And first time I was down there, I don't think I've ever been more exhausted in a boardroom in my life. It was all glass walls and we had the whole, the whole room was full after two days, just getting grilled with good questions. And I can remember day two, I walked in with a coffee at quarter to eight and Sid dragged me over to a big screen and here they had a mimic team in Romania. I think it was Romania because the time changes exactly 12 hours. So that's how they did their 24-hour programming is they did a handoff from 7.45 to 8 o'clock and the programmers just kept going in Romania and then they turned back on in San Francisco. Some of the things I learned from him were no different than some of my best HR rules have come from a buddy that owns Subway and, and some of my how do you deal with rain delays have come from a friend that owns resorts in Mexico, right? Like I, I think Granular taught me a lot about data and you know i think one of the coolest things about the people that believe in startups and ag tech and, and any type of tech is they really do have a thirst to solve a problem or, or fix a puzzle and so being around them kind of you know really ignited that passion inside me you know and then i can fully admit i, I met mark andreessen while i was down there and i was naive enough to not even know who he was right and i just remember asking him one time like you're way too smart to be at a supper table with me, I have to ask your story. And he gave me the story, you know, grew up on a, I think he was a dairy farm in Wisconsin and built Netscape Navigator in my dorm room and may or may not sit on the board of HP and Facebook and, and we run, you know, Andreessen Horowitz. And so it's just, it's pretty eye-opening for, a, you know, Mooseman's 3,000 people, Fairlight that we farm all around is about 26 people. So, I mean, it's pretty eye-opening for, for someone like me that that group of people was interested in agriculture at all. Right. And, and is ag tech always good? No, it's not. Right. It's kind of a trial and error thing, but we can't be negative towards that, that group of people and that size of brains and pockets being interested in our industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was probably what, eight or nine years ago now or so. Um, yeah, I'd say at least. Yeah. Yep. And so you've really kind of watched the 
at least the, the recent evolution of ag tech that's happened in the last almost decade here. And I know you've written some thoughts about it. Maybe talk about from a farmer's perspective, you know, where is it uh, falling short and, and what would you like to see more from out of the ag tech industry in general? Yeah, so I do a whole bunch of work for John Deere in their North American business structure. And so I throw a little barb at them over their autonomous tractor. And it's not that I don't think I'll use them one day, but I mean, currently it would be more for peripheral activities and a human is a lot cheaper to me than what they're going to want to charge me for that tractor. So it's not that I disagree with the thought, but, you know, when it comes to ag tech, I think things such as, you know, more of an open API type system, right? I, there's nothing that pisses a farmer off more than having to type his field names in and pull his shape files into every single new app that somebody wants me to use. And that I have to have 17 of them open on my phone if I want to get done in the morning, right? We want to have two or three. I'm sorry. It's no different than I don't think people want to have 17 different streaming channels on their TV. They want two or three. So I think that the API system and just, it kind of reminds me a little bit of farmers, right? That the ag tech companies are kind of going through this fierce individualism, right? Or independence. And I think agriculture has the same issue, right? Farmers are fiercely independent. It lets us beat mother nature and get through these problems. But at the same time, we don't collaborate very well. And I think the ag tech industry is kind of following that same issue right now. They're, the collaboration's a bit weak. And, and sometimes they need to focus a little more on the check writer. And that's the farmer versus what they're deciding in the boardroom. So that's where I kind of say on, on APIs and collaboration. And then, you know, I, I think they need to do a little better job of of having farm advisors and having unique schemes to get farmers in it as advisors, whether that's stock options or, you know, free use of the tool for X number of years, as long as you're providing advice. And, and they, they really need to understand how their technology is going to change a daily decision. Because that's the big problem in agriculture is that, you know, in most areas of Canada and, and half the U.S., we get to grow one crop a year. So if you compare us to any other inventory business, let's use Walmart. I mean, we turn our inventory once, they'd laugh at us, right? They're turning it probably the whole store 17 to 25 times a year, their best products, 80 to 100. They get to learn every time where people walk, what time they come in, how much they're willing to pay for it. We get to track that once a year and most of it sits in a binder that then goes into a shelf that never gets looked at, you know, until grandpa passes away so we can see what he sold his wheat for. And so that's kind of my big thing right now is we need ag tech, but as farmers too, to make this data we're collecting something that one is usable. So let's make it intelligent. And two, let's make a decision off it. It needs to help us make a decision on at least a weekly basis to improve this inventory turn. And that could be make the crop healthier. It could be what's going on in the soil. It could be a better shift implementation for my humans. It could be better path planning for my equipment. It could be what's my grain doing in the bin 25 miles away. You know, it could be better coordination with the elevators on when trucks are going to show up so you're not stuck in line. Like there's a hundred different ways that we can help improve daily and weekly decisions. But if that isn't the end result, it's a waste of time. If you can't make a decision or improve a decision from what's being made, in my time, like that's no different than my kid having a new PlayStation game. It's an app that I think is cool, but it doesn't help me make any decisions or make any money. Like that, that's just a game. That's all it is. And I think that probably describes uh, way too much of the current ag tech industry. We're all like, okay, we, we need the data before we can use the data, but it's awfully tough to make that leap to actually 
implementation management decisions, actions that come from it. You know, is there anything out there that that you see the opportunity for technology to help you in a really meaningful way? It's just not there yet. Is there anything that comes top of mind on that? Yeah, I mean, my first one is probably still, I think we've done a really bad job of using technology to understand soil better. I mean, we're still doing, you know, grid soil tests and zone maps, and everyone can argue whether gridding or zoning and all that is better. But the real answer is, is we've done a pretty good job in the last two decades of understanding what's going on above the ground. And we've done a pretty poor job of understanding what's going on below the ground. And I mean, especially in that four feet that we know full well that the roots of all our crops are pulling moisture and using the nutrients in that four feet. You know, one of the farms we toured when I was in Belgium last, they had the potato sensor and I actually had a good chat with the the Black Gold Potato Crew, the Halverson family. They've been using them for like 15 or 20 years, Greg said. And I mean, it's a, a sensor the same size as a potato that they put in the hill by the potatoes. And it's mainly from when it gets harvested to it gets in the shed, how many times it gets bumped because obviously bruising is their big issue. But really, it's that type of a theory tied somehow to our root system, how water's infiltrating the soil, how are the nutrients getting taken up, how is bulk density and carbon burnoff actually even being affected by a growing crop. And I, and I don't think we've done a good job of that on a soil sensory type idea. And I think, you know, currently weather stations and, and all these physical sensors in the field, I mean, I like them, I have some of them, but over time, we have to get this tested enough that we're doing it from satellites, or it's just not scalable or feasible from a money perspective in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those are good ones. You know, for you being entrepreneurial, but also the farmer, so having firsthand knowledge of how this technology is or is not implemented on the farm, you've been an advisor. Are there other ways that ag tech companies could get you more involved as a strategic maybe investor or advisor or you know how do you think about that and and do you see opportunities for more of that for farmers like yourself yeah so i mean i've I've done it a few different ways i mean as you said with granular i was a strategic advisor and and that setup was more with stock options i think they offered me a few different type of ideas but to be honest i was more kind of intrigued with learning once i had been down there once than i was about getting paid by the hour so it was you know, it was different, but, you know, I sit on the advisory board for a new venture cap fund out of Regina, Saskatchewan called Emertech, of which anyone on the advisory board co-invested with the fund. And so I think that's an opportunity that we can see whether it's venture cap funds or groups of farms or maybe a private equity firm with a few farms with it, start having a bit of a captive investment, you know, fund to go into these ag techs. And then, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, as a farmer, if you're going to sit on a fund as an advisor I'm not saying you should invest in day one until you really understand the management team and the product, but I, I fully believe that if you're going to be a long-term advisor, after the first year, you should either invest or get off because you don't believe in it otherwise, right? And so it's a waste of everybody's time. And, and we want people, I think on each of these egg techs, we want the farms that are passionate about that type of technology, right? And, and so, you know, I, I shouldn't sit on, on certain advisory boards because it's not a technology that that I'm passionate about, but I probably have people in my network that are, and I trust their guidance very much so in those areas. Yeah. A couple more questions, and then I promise I will let you go. The first one being, how attainable are these things for someone who's listening? They've got enough ground to make a living with them, and you know they want to grow and they want to implement some of these things, but is it attainable for them to start putting an operating system into place and, and kind of working through these things and where should they start? You know, I think for sure you could put an operating system in as long as you're willing to invest in it. I mean, we were able to find some small business grants that helped 
you know, put us over the edge. And, and I think if you were smaller, you'd probably want to include some of your key advisors on your management team. Cause it's not that you're running your farm all by yourself. You probably have an agronomist that if you were larger would be full time. And maybe it's an accountant or a lawyer that really you've just got a contract based management team. I think the other thing that farms really need to look at is if your goal isn't to grow to the point where you can have your own CFO or your own agronomist or your own heavy duty mechanic. I mean, it's not that abnormal that two or three farms could go together and hire a CFO or go together and hire an agronomist. You just have to be willing to do it a little bit different than the, the generation before you did it. And I mean, you, you take a CPA in the US, I mean, they're bound by very high confidentiality. So it could be your neighbor because they're not allowed to talk about it anyway. So I think some of those unique things, if you want to you know, apply some of these systems and capture some of the synergies that the larger farms are capturing, all you have to do is collaborate with other like-minded farmers so that you kind of have that same clout or ability. And I think there's lots of ways to do that. You just have to be willing to, you know, do it a little different than probably your dad did or your parents did. Awesome. Man, Christian, this has been so good. Thank you very much for this. Anything I didn't give you a chance to talk about? No, I'm running up against time here, but this has been really great. We covered a lot of ground. Anything, though, that you wanted to mention, at least, before I let you go? No, I think it was really good, Tim. I, uh, you know, I guess one other thing we talk about a few times with some buddies is that when it comes to kind of bringing up the next generation of agriculture, whether it's we need to create a, you know, a farm kind of more SIAS type program where it's just like going to be a plumber or a welder, right? And and have some transparency about wages and training. Or the other thing we've always talked about is kind of a transition program or a mentorship program between a group of farms where, you know, young employees or say kids from one farm in the U.S. come up to my farm for a year or two before they go back to become a big part of their own farm. And it all goes around kind of that collaboration and and how do we turn agriculture into a career in the mindsets of the kids coming through college. Because right now, I think it's mainly, you know, pictured as I'm a farmhand. And my job's going to be exactly the same for the next 40 years. And, and I think there's way more opportunity and excitement in working on a farm than, than is currently pictured. And I think, a, you know, a group of people and companies need to spend some time figuring out how to do that. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, especially, you know, you hear a lot where a farmer will say, my son or daughter can go back to the farm, but I want them to go work elsewhere. Why not go work on another farm and, and kind of help two birds with one stone of, of helping a labor problem as well as a get out and learn something new problem? Yeah, no, I completely agree. What a great episode, a great interview, really. Two episodes with Christian Hebert. Thank you so much to him for taking the time for this conversation and really for being so open about how he's been able to achieve such tremendous success up there in Canada. Really appreciate that, Christian. I'm going to link to his website in the show notes, as well as provide the links for the three books he read to learn about this EOS system, which were Traction, Get a Grip, and Rocket Fuel, all by Gino Wickman. If this episode has been valuable to you, please let Christian know on social media. And if you have a quick minute, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.